Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, believe it by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Blog Talk Radio. Greetings, 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 greetings. Welcome to another edition of Revolutionary
you create and recreate your reality. Your reality is not influenced by the weather. Your reality is not contingent on what people say, do, or believe. People will abandon you. People will leave you out in the road, beloved. <laughs> so indeed, all is a blessing. All is a blessing and work for the betterment of my good. And those of us who accept and walk in that mantra. Today is Tuesday, December 8th. 2020, and I am emanating and vibrating with you and for you live, verbally, verbally, virtually, cosmically, quantum universally from this working temple of the house of the divine prince. High potions, hoodoo central in this legendary, historic, beautiful, most enchanted, and some would say most haunted city in America, New Orleans, Louisiana, the Fogborg, Treme the land of my ancestors and those who came before me along this hoodoo obeya life path and journey, passing down the great obia stick along with the knowledge of the life-giving herbs, roots, plants, rituals, spirits, minerals. My beloved Denise Augustine would say, our sacred story, our sacred story, say it with me, our sacred story, OurSacredStories.com. Please register, signed up, RSVP for your tours, your experience, your visitations here in this beautiful city of New Orleans, Louisiana. Let us walk you through the journey. Let us walk you through the history, much like we do here on this show, but right here on the ground in this legendary city of New Orleans, Louisiana. I am full today, uh, as some of you might be able to pick up. Spirit is powerful, particularly in this season, in this time of the year when I espouse that the sales are there thinning during these winter months, during this holiday season, when people's energies and spirits and hearts and emotions are, are often just Right there at the surface. And so during this time, I, I as I often do, um, I seek the message. I seek the sign. I seek to wonder and, and, and make sense of and understand. And this year for sure has forced all of us, no matter where you're viewing in the world, no matter where you're listening right now in the world, no matter where you're chatting us right now in the world, Spirit has forced us, nature has forced us to humble ourselves in this season of 2020, to seek balance in this season of 2020, to seek better inner standing of our own individual and unique polarities, as well as the polarities of our, of our governments and our organizations and our leadership and those who step into those roles of leadership. We've all been tested in the 2020. And for me, I don't know about for you, 2020 went pretty fast in spite of it all. The stay at home, you know, one day leads into another day, leads into another day, you know, and as long as you're operating in ministry, as long as you're operating in in healing, as long as you're operating in, in spirit, 
I count it all joy. I count it all joy. I, I do want to note, and maybe I don't note it enough, those of you who, uh, you know, I find it curious, those who participate in the show don't necessarily watch me on TV. And those who watch me on TV don't necessarily even realize I have a daily podcast. <laughs> and, and, and those who interact with me on Twitter don't necessarily see anything that's going on in Facebook or uh, WordPress or, or some other format. So I'm often reminded of what I need to say more often, what I need to say frequently. Please, please, beloved, please, particularly right now in this season of Corona, in this season of the holidays, in, in, in this reawakening of, of holiday South and, and of Hollywood South and the filming schedule that I often keep up, do not drive long distances, do not cross town, do not catch a bus, a bike, a train, a taxi, an Uber to my house without having communicated with me, without having established an appointment with me. It's so inconvenient for both me and you. It's so inconvenient. It's also so unprofessional. In the moment when I'm just stepping out with a cup of coffee and and to get some air, I might not even have all my teeth in and have people just show up and expect me to be able to receive you in that moment. It's just, I can't. It's just not even realistic. And particularly right now, I am grateful, grateful for PBS Monstrum. I am grateful for the Travel Channel. I am absolutely humbled and grateful for Nat Geo. Nat Geo Asia, Nat Geo Africa, Nat Geo UK, Nat Geo TV. I'm, I'm humbled. But beloved, beloved, please send me an email. I, I used to do that every day, and I thought maybe it was becoming monotonous. Send your questions, comments, and requests by email to Divine Prince. Divine Prince at House of the Divine Prince.com. And I'll be more than happy to schedule you to accommodate you. And if it helps, understand. Urgent care requests, ritual requests, last-minute requests require so much more from both of us. So pre-plan, prepare, speak up before you show up. Because I might have to say, beloved, I can't see you right now. I might have to say, beloved, I can't even talk to you right now. Sometimes I step out catch a breath, and I'm in the middle of a a ritual. I'm in the middle of a ceremony. I'm in the middle of a reading. I'm in the middle of broadcasting somewhere in the world. So it makes it, you know, seem rude if I say, listen, I can't talk to you. I got to Then you would say I wasn't a nice guy. (laughs) Right? So please, please, please visit my website at www.outofthedesignprint.com send your email, questions, comments, and requests to Greetings, beloved. Kevin, Kevin Turner, greetings. Um, Stephon, Chael, Senior, greetings, greetings. Shafani, Coleman, greetings to all of my new listeners and participants and, and 
potential co-hosts. And of course, my consistent regular community, Shamafia, greetings, beloved. Guinevere Reed, welcome, welcome to another edition of Revolutionary Hoodoo. S. Marie, Tangerine Bliss, Matthew Ferguson, Neophyte Bacour. Neophyte, you, you've been kind of ghosting on us here lately. What's going on with you, brother? Is it your equipment or is it your schedule? <clears throat> I'm used to you holding down the microphone with me to some degree here in this space. So I welcome all of you, and let me say, um, it's humbling. It's humbling through any season, through any weather, through any holiday, those of you who find your way here to this space, even if I'm not here, even if I have to jet out in the middle of a show, uh, you all still continue to support and show up, and, and I'm grateful for that. There is a narrative that we're all familiar with that continues to be repeated, regurgitated, recopied, and pasted, uh, and particularly today in the, the Internet environment, social media environment, where many of us are being reminded and introduced to many books, authors, contextual works, literary works that speak to our culture, our tradition, our, our practice. Some of us are seeking that information out. I know every day I, I seek to look deeper into a specific cultural practice, a specific ethnic group, a specific language to further my own universal knowledge of Pan-African studies, particularly as it relates to spirituality and religion. And so there's still yet that continuing narrative that somehow we had no language, we had no God, we had no understanding, we had no spiritual practices or context from which we grew up out of the the cotton fields of Alabama and and Mississippi and and the Carolinas and and Louisiana. And 50 years ago, 100 years ago, that narrative was accepted, widely accepted. And there was not a whole lot of information to counter that belief, that misunderstanding about who we are as people. I ask you again, is your great great-grandmother, is she a bastard? Is your great-great-grandfather, is he a bastard? And are those who came before you, are they bastard children? Because many would suggest that you black witches among the sound of my voice, you people of color among the sound of my voice who have a history and a lineage that passes through the middle passage that leads you here to this America, South of our of our southernmost border, that you have no past, that you have no God other than just us, that you have no no belief system other than that given to you by the Master. It gets stuck in my craw <laughs> every time I see someone repeat the narrative that without Haiti, that without the Haitian Revolution. 
that without wealthy, slave-owning, upper-class Haitian Creoles, that somehow they came here and gifted us awareness of, of, of voodoo. Let me say that again. Do you all understand the history and the story of the Haitian Revolution? It wasn't those who were fighting for freedom who made their way to, to North America. It wasn't the enslaved that made their way to North America, other than by ships along in the company and, and, and possessions of their masters. It was indeed the wealthy. It was indeed the elite. It was indeed the slave-owning Haitian Creoles that made their way to Louisiana. And so somehow we're to believe, we're to accept that this group of people made their way here and, and, and voodoo was born. Voodoo was birthed within our community. Not understanding, not accepting, or maybe just in uh, uh, absolute denial of the history of Louisiana, the history of enslavement in North America, and the presence of African-based spiritual systems here, along with the people, long before the arrival of a Haitian slave owner. Native Americans settled what is now Louisiana at least as long as 6,000 years ago. We know this in Congo Square. We recount this story in Congo Square because we understand that the Homa Indians and many other indigenous tribes had their corn festivals at sacred ground that we now acknowledge as the sacredness that is Congo Square. So that land was not just sanctified by us, not just sanctified by the Akan and the Fon and the Igbo and the Yoruba, but was sanctified by those indigenous people who possessed this land, who resided here long before we. Tribes of the Mishahokan language occupied the east, central, and southeastern region. Tunican tribes live along the coast and the northeast, and tribes of the Kedoan group inhabit the north and the northwest. At the time of European arrival in the 16th century, there are more than 10,000 indigenous people living in Louisiana. By 1700, 15,000 from six different linguistic ethnic groups are present in, in the Louisiana, soon to be known Louisiana, Mississippi area. Louisiana sits above the Gulf of Mexico at the mouth of the Mississippi River, bordered by Arkansas to the very north, Mississippi to the east, and Texas to the west. Originally colonized by the French during the 18th century, it became U.S. territory as part of the historic Louisiana Purchase in 1803 and was admitted to the Union in 1812. Now, in 1519, 
Alvarez Dependia discovers the mouth of the Mississippi. 1841, Hernando de Soto discovers the Mississippi River. 1543, July 18th, de Soto expedition survivors under the command of Louis de Moscoso become the first group of white men to travel down the Mississippi River to the Gulf of Mexico. Now, we skip ahead just a little bit. Let's skip ahead to uh, 1719. The first documented, because we understand now from, from the 1500s, 1600s, now 1700s, we are to believe that the Spanish arrived, that they had a, 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 a relatively romantic relationship with the indigenous people. You know, we don't hear a lot of those stories being told. We don't hear a lot of discussion, you know, about war and, and rumors of war and the elimination of a people in order to possess the land. But the records state that the first large importation of black slaves, the first large importation happened in 1719 as German families began to arrive in Louisiana. 1722, a hurricane destroyed much of New Orleans. And in 1723, New Orleans becomes the capital of Louisiana, superseding Biloxi. 1724, March of 1724, the Black Code, restriction of former black slaves' freedom of movement, required them to labor, punishment of insubordinate behavior, the creation of things like the brown paper bag test and, and all sorts of rules and regulations and protocols to curtail and limit our movement. In fact, if you're aware of the T-Known Dead Rat, that is historic to the New Orleans. It is to distinguish the, the pretty honey-colored, Creole-colored sister from, from a quote-unquote real white woman. So you were not allowed to wear your hair down, wear your hair out, because it was too confusing to the oppressor. So you had to wear the head wrap. You had to wear a and there's no difference between Aunt your mama's rap and, and, and the most sophisticated Creole woman's Tinong, other than resources, availability of, of, of money and fabric, <laughs> and your ability to uh, 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 creatively and dramatically display your wealth and your culture and your character uh, on your head. But we know those of us who understand and who read and study the history, we know that 1724 is a long way off from the Haitian Revolution. And so the idea that hoodoo, conjure, group work, you know, wasn't even in the conversation before the Haitian Revolution is just ridiculous people. It, it doesn't even make any sense. You would have to indeed be zombie. You would indeed have had to have your soul 
and your memory and your ability uh, to count removed from you. Removed from you if we are to accept this narrative. <laughs> and the evidence, the archaeological evidence keeps surrounding, keeps showing up of the footprint of ATR, African-based traditional religious spiritual systems from the Mississippi Delta uh, on through to the Gullah Geechee uh, Sea Islands in, in, in the Carolinas and in the uh, northern Georgia uh, region. We hear talk and discussion and, and romanticism of, of Marie Laveau. And Marie Laveau is a very controversial conversation in the new city of New Orleans still. Uh, for those of you who don't live here, aren't active in the, in the spiritual community, may not be aware to what degree who Marie Laveau is, Marie Laveau's story, and her connection to voodoo is a contentious uh, conversation here locally. Uh, and not just her descendants or her family members, but of course, Preachers, ministers, spiritualists, book writers, and authors, and and those who would otherwise, again, seek to diminish the power of the enslaved African, the the enslaved black man and woman here in this land. And so we we are still today. I I see you, Neophyte, of course. Thank you for joining us, beloved. We are still today seeking empowerment, seeking truth, seeking how to gather the skills of, of freedom and resistance and, and liberation from sources outside of ourselves. Many of you are just hearing the story of Dr. John. Not Dr. John, the musician. <laughs> Dr. John Montanay, the father of New Orleans voodoo, the loa of drummers and root doctors in Louisiana, the patron to male and female root workers and voodoo practitioners here in New Orleans, one of the few authors that I'm aware of that even speaks to our culture in any direct way is Denise Alvarado. And yes, I'm still asking, have you read that book, The Magic of Marie Laveau? And if so, where am I in that book? Not you, Neophyte Bocor. Because I already know you know you know where I am in the book. But for all of the others among the sound of my voice who got excited when I posted her book in, in my social media stream, I ask you, tell me, where am I in that book? And it's important, not only to me, but it should be important to you because it speaks to exactly what I'm doing right now. It speaks to why. I'm doing what I'm doing right now. And that's to recapture, to regain power. Power. New Orleans is is notarized for many things. Uh, Not just our our great cooking and our great food and and creative language and and, and cultural nuances. We're also known for uh, pirates and, and spy culture, you know, doing these earlier years of the development um, of the city. And and during that time, there was nothing more 
sought after. They're good Grigri. There's some good Wanga and Mojo out of Louisiana, out of New Orleans. Use your imagination. Envision a time when there's no car and there's no airplane and there's no highway and the Mississippi River is a superhighway of Southern America. And to this day, a great deal of your food, your oil and gas products, your coffee products come up the Mississippi River through the ports of New Orleans. And so people from all over the world, and still to this day, it's turned into a vibrant tourist culture that we have here in the city, sought hoodoo in New Orleans, sought mocho in New Orleans, sought empowerment in New Orleans. So, so some of the discussion about Marie Laveau is her role in introducing commercialized practice into the, into the, uh, uh, into the language of uh, voodoo demonstration here in, in Louisiana. Some people lay the responsibility on Marie Laveau specifically, her and her daughter, for the introduction of tarot cards and fortune telling and, and uh, gypsy-like characteristics of the voodoo demonstration in Louisiana. And indeed, it's one of the reasons that feeds people's desire to say, oh, that's some, some bull, you know, that's a mess in Louisiana. That ain't real in Louisiana. You, you got to go to Haiti. You got to go to Panama. You got to go here. You got to go there. And so when we look at these historic figures like Dr. John Montanay, who also was one of the, the uh, introducers of ATR by way of performance into the city. Remember, we're talking about a time where many of us were still enslaved. There were free people of color like Marie Laveau, uh, understanding the conditions that they were forced to live under, had to wrap their head, had to make sure that they were clean, clearly distinguishable from, quote, unquote, acceptable white society, had to, you know, adhere to the brown paper bag test, had to shop and eat at the black or colored Negro, you know, I named Kathy Balvin over, over the centuries, you know. And so to arise to any degree of notoriety, any degree of power, much like the fictional character Chicken George in Alice Haley's Roots was contingent on not just your ability to work and be a workhorse and a skilled workhorse, but your ability to perform, your ability to storytell, your ability to sing. And so many stereotypes stuck to us well up until the 1950s, 60s, 70s, the idea that we just shuck and jive, the idea that we just chew fat, the idea that we can't communicate without Ebonics, without, you know, speaking jive, without, that's a 1970s word, <laughs> speaking jive, without, you know, somehow skinning and grinning, as my dad used to say, smiling through our pain, smiling through our objection as a people. And so conjure voodoo, hoodoo, root work 
has been a source of empowerment within our community since before the Haitian Revolution. I say, and I'll say it again, the Haitian Revolution only further complicated things for us, only made things worse for us in in an environment where we are already being curtailed in our movement, where we're already being told where we can go and how we should go and how we should dress and how we should live and what gods we should acknowledge and, 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 and what rights we should indeed perform. And so hoodoo, root work, conjure, voodoo have been um, forms of not just empowerment for us, but also resistance for us, resistance against the system. Some of that uh, Big Chief Kevin Turner uh, would tell you shows up in New Orleans, Louisiana, Indian culture. Um, and, and, and not just the, the donning of, of handcrafted suits, but in the spiritual representation, in the spiritual symbolism, in, in, in why we chant, and how we chant, and what we say and what we chant, and what we really mean when we chant. Uh, uh, I believe it was the God's initiative used that word yesterday about coded, coded language. Him coded, Negro spiritual coded, you know, behavior and how we wear a particular wrap coded, all coded language to, uh, on the one hand, uh, mask our own self awareness, but also appear to be uh, moving through the normal course of things so as not to raise much, you know, attention from not just master, but, but from the adversarial uh, cohort who might share your information, who might leak your secrets, who, who may, maybe can't be trusted um, with, the, with the power of your knowledge and your information. Particularly here in New, in New Orleans, when we look at St. Maroon and uh, St. Milo and the ability for enslaved Africans to not just escape slavery, but to, to, to escape it and return, to come and go, to create and set up maroon camps out in, in what was thought to be the swamps of, of, uh, uh, of, of, of New Orleans East but to create a, a place of survival and solitude and safety for a great deal of time. And then to go back into the city, to come back into New Orleans, back into the French Quarter, to gather resources, to carry news or information, to fulfill your job, you know, and, and do your work. So we've got to recapture Recapture, reclaim, renew what already belongs to us. This is not a point of argument. If you notice, I don't do a lot of documentaries, a a lot of podcasts where I'm arguing between, you know, voodoo in, in Louisiana and voodoo in Haiti and voodoo in West Africa. There is no argument. West Africa birthed. Voodoo, 
We understand this. And the ethnic groups that traveled forcibly by way of the Middle Passage carried that belief, that tradition, those understandings to wherever they landed. From the southern tip of, of South America to the northernmost part of, of North America. And again, somehow we are to believe, we are to accept that we had nothing until the 1790 Haitian Revolution, that we had no memory until then. Also, um, we still don't acknowledge enough the indigenous footprint uh, in these traditions. Uh, let me check the chat real quick. Neophyte Bokur, are you with me, beloved? Yes, sir. Um, right here, um, Sarkar Ramon's uh, absence from the show uh, had to take care of some family business and whatnot. I got requested to travel with my wife to visit uh, our grandparents that were uh, going through some ailments, and she thought that it would be helpful if I went along to, you know, do some stuff for For you and your family that indeed all is a blessing. Let me respond to uh, revolution, trolling revolution. I like your name, by the way. Tro- trolling revolution. Are you, um, he's asking, am I in the next Pirates of the Caribbean movie? No. N- not that I'm aware of. Um, often we will film a movie and they, or a TV show and they will give them code names uh, and not the real name. Uh, in some cases, they, they have not named a movie until late in the production or after it has already been filmed. Uh, but I know from my schedule and, and sort of what I've done in the last year, um, no. I'm not even aware of Pirates of Caribbean being filmed um, here in Louisiana. Now, that doesn't mean that it, it, it has not been or certain you know, segments of it. I'm not in every production. Um, I know some people would like to think I am. I'm not in every production that comes to to Louisiana, but I'm definitely in many of the productions that happen uh, within New Orleans proper. Um, So I haven't heard any talk of Pirates of the Caribbean, haven't seen anything of it. So as far as, no, I'm not in it, and and I don't know a whole lot about it. I'm kind of glad that um, I'm not the only one that catches the, the little nuances added to uh, the Disney catalog, especially the Pirates of the Caribbean. There's a lot of mythology tied in with the voodoo in some of the rituals performed in Pirates of the Caribbean. I thought that was really fascinating. Well, you know, the goddess, I don't know if you were listening yesterday, but the goddess initiative made a real strong point about that, um, about coding. And the presence of our sacred stories, our truths, our tradition, now sort of being masked in, in, in some of these productions. And I, I agree with her, relatively speaking. But I, don't, I, I, I said yesterday, and I'm going to repeat it today, that I don't believe that should necessarily be an absolute truth. I think there are other energies at work. One of them, which does not work in our best interest, 
But we as a community are sitting out this beacon, this symbol of being needy, being hungry, being thirsty for our own truth, our own tradition, particularly when it comes to spirituality, religion, magic, you know, uh, folk culture, if you want to use that term, uh, et cetera. My complication with that neophyte vocor, and I'm sure you already know, is how much does that lend to truthfulness and, and a feeding of the framework of truthfulness around voodoo and ATR culture. Um, I looked at um, Lovecraft Country, the whole thing, the whole season. Um, I, in fact, I've looked at it twice now. I looked at it over the weekend, and I watched it again uh, yesterday um, going into the night. Um, very entertaining, very entertaining, uh, very powerful messages um, being portrayed and projected. Uh, history was, was, was talked about. I didn't, I didn't expect the, the Tulsa riots to come up in that. I didn't expect any degree of, of, of truth in our history to come up in that. But in a day when people are not necessarily clear about how to separate reality from, from fiction, truth from fact, it's problematic. And it furthers sort of the black witch notion about who and what we are. If you get a chance, run to my Instagram, Divine Prince Ty Emeka. My Instagram is Divine Prince Ty Emeka. I know that's long. It's all one word, Divine Prince Ty Emeka. And uh, five posts in, it's a sister kind of laid out with some things going on. I won't give it away unless you've seen it already. Uh, but it's an introduction of, of or reintroduction of the notion of vampire culture in, in Africa. And again, I think sometimes we over-stereotype things. Things are black and white, think it's us and them, and we aren't always fully edified on the details of a particular practice or cultural nuance to be able to identify to what degree we brought it, to what degree someone else brought it, and to what degree it has sort of amalgamated, synthesized together. So many of the more modern voodoo ideas and concepts are Afrocentric, come, come out of more indigenous-based perspectives. And so in, in responding again to the God's Initiative, uh, about the coding, I think that there is a uh, interest in us all of a sudden. There's a desire for voodoo all of a sudden. And not just in entertainment. Again, I'm grateful to PBS. I'm grateful to the Travel Channel. I'm grateful, you know, to, to Net Geo and History Channel. Absolutely. And we are seeing more truthful, documentary-oriented tellings of our story. But I ask again, how popular is that? How viral is that? You'd much rather see lightning come out of my eyes and fire come out of my mouth. Like a good Nollywood movie, like a good Gollywood movie, you know, than to really 
know and understand that we have access to a power greater than ourselves. We have access to a power greater than enslavement. We have access to a power, a power greater than, than Trump. We have access to a power greater than any system that we might find ourselves forced to live within or, or, or coming up against if we would just ignite that, just turn that on. Um, I'm working with a powerful team of filmmakers, black male filmmakers in, in, in the state of Georgia. Uh, the Horn Brothers, H-O-R-N-E, the Horn Brothers. Uh, Google them. We don't want to just put out, you know, more foolishness. We don't want to just produce more, you know, really good ghost stories and entertainment and, and, and spooky horror life stuff. But I would like to see, and, and, and I'm grateful to be in a position to influence more truthful depictions and representations of what HCR really is and, and how it works. Um, Denise and I were on our our daily voodoo ritual walk, and um, we were discussing just the notion that truth is just so much more entertaining than fiction. Truth is just so much more real, you know, than than fiction. How we have gotten to this place in in Western society that it's got to be somehow synthesized, synthetic, plastic, man-made. Man can always do better than nature. You know, we know where that thought process comes from. Um, I'm just throwing out a hypothetical question there. Um, Am I missing questions? Let's see. Yes, B.B. Heyman. Absolutely beloved. All is a blessing. Uh, Zen Chody. I don't... uh, I don't adhere to Hollywood depictions of voodoo. So, I don't know if your question is, is real or not, I will say I'm not really going to entertain it. Um, There are much more practical ways to give someone (laughs) COVID-19. Just a little crack, you know, but why would you want to? So I don't don't know if you are our friendly uh, interloper or, or if you're just trying to be comical. I don't know Zen. You might be one of my, my TV producer friends who likes to who likes to throw out stuff like that. Um, Dee Dee Harmon, you're throwing out some powerful, powerful words, and is is, is that me? <laughs> Are you transcribing what I'm saying? Yes, ma'am. Yes. Um, yeah. I mean, this is you know, I welcome imagination, the guys in this tip. That's that's a question that I would expect from elementary school. So if I could actually see Zen and, and Zen was 10, 12, I might have entertained that. But in an audience full of adults, that question doesn't even make sense. And not just the voodoo doll part, the whole COVID-19 part don't, don't make sense. Yeah, that's not... 
a legitimate question. Listen, you can get somebody COVID-19 with, with, a, with a washcloth if we really want to talk about giving people COVID-19. But who would? I mean, why? That, I mean, come on now. That, that's like deciding you want to give people herpes, deciding you want to pass on HIV. All of those should be criminalized. And in some states, they are criminalized. So um, it, it's not a, it's not a, rel- it's not a, a legitimate question. <laughs> yeah, it's not a, it's not a legitimate question. Uh, Guinevere Reed. Yes, thank you so much. Great, great, great. I, listen, I try to give information. I try to give truth. I try to give the history. Um, it's not always well received. Um, sometimes I'm judged for it uh, from both sides of, of the fence, um, if you will. Um, I, I do what the ancestors call me to do. I do what is within the confines of my destiny. Um, staying within the balance and the equilibrium of your destiny is really what Fa, Afa, Ifa practice is really all about. Any of these ethnic groups that utilize the five divination, the, the, the 16 palm nut system, the 16 cowrie shell system are based in, deep in a better understanding of balance. That's why it said, you know, we don't necessarily, you know, have good or bad, you know, evil or good necessarily in, in HCR based system because in nature there's a seeking of, of balance. We don't see the the hungry lion devouring the gazelle as a necessary evil or as a you know something wicked. We see it as a, a, a continuation of the cycle of nature, if you will. And, and it's why I have such an issue with the sort of the humanizing of pets and animals that we've done in Western society. Um, in the long term, hate hurts many of these animals and also continues to harm um, nature and, and the environment. Okay, yeah. All right. Forgive me for my uh, Facebook stream. It's probably, um, yeah, I don't know what that problem is. Um, your question ain't legit. <laughs> and it's not that it can't be answered. I said I would not. I didn't say I couldn't answer it. I said I would not. And if you were listening, uh, then... If you were listening, I answered your question. Your your question could have been answered without voodoo. If that's really something you want to do, your question could have been answered without voodoo. And I answered it. Now, now if my answer was too far above your intellectual understanding, that's that's a whole nother arena. <laughs> and I can't help you there. See, see my third eye aware, my conscious aware, even the wise visitor right now understands what I'm doing with you. I'm not stooping. 
I'm not bowing down. I, I'm not about to get on, on your level of things. I understand because you aren't on my level of things. And that was demonstrated in that question. No one comes to this room to ask how we use voodoo to harm people. No one. And I've discussed that in previous shows over the years. People that want me to harm babies, children, spouses, frenemies, disruptive interlopers to my show. I use my power, my knowledge, my wisdom for real things. And there are certain things you can't give in a public format because people like you will hurt yourself and other people. Let's pray you don't get the COVID trying to give somebody else the COVID. How, how about that? Let's pray you don't get the COVID then trying to give somebody else the COVID. Okay? Okay. <laughs> um, yeah, I hear you, the goddess initiative. Her comment on coding in movies and TV wasn't specific to HPR, but on how most music TV movies are coded with messages that pertain to occultism, alchemy, metaphysics, aliens, ancestors, etc. And, and again, I, I agree. I just don't always think that it's necessarily about when I hear coding, I think there's some higher knowledge that's being leaked or being shared. So I'm just offering that it's also just based in curiosity. I can remember, because I'm a little bit older than, than some of my audience, um, we went into a dead zone for TV. We came out of a, you know, a decade and a time in a season of great television. Great television. And then all of a sudden, Somewhere in the, in the early 90s, um, maybe the late 80s, after Dynasty, after In Living Color was taken off TV, uh, we sort of went into a dark season. And, and everything was the same. Everything was copied and regurgitated and, and, and mimicked out. You know? And so now, um, with the uh, intervention of the Internet, these writers and creators and producers have an opportunity to sit back and watch us and sit back and listen to us, sit back and observe our demonstration. Okay. <laughs> then, <laughs> and from that, they gain an awareness of what people want. And it ends up, you know, uh, it ends up, you know, I'm trying to remember this uh, uh, most uh, relevant TV programs that are out right now. It ends up on, on television shows like Lovecraft Country, uh, Soul, it's a Soul City, you know, American Horror Story. But again, once you introduce it into the realm of entertainment, artistry, then there's a degree of creative license that we allow the creators, the writers, the producers, and using imagination and fantasy and, and imagery in, in these productions. So I, I agree with uh, the goddess of history 100%. I, I just don't necessarily think that coding is always um, intentional or always um, 
designed to sort of uh, represent something truthful in that environment with the understanding that people like us would sort of pick that up, which would sort of respond to it. God's Initiative has quite a few YouTube influencers, or she has seen quite a few YouTube influencers in occult, ATR, witchcraft, making videos say that they have returned to Jesus. <laughs> what are my thoughts? Um, my first response is, hallelujah! <laughs> That's my first response. Um, my second response is, once you get of a certain age, you see certain patterns. And so there's some among us, Oracle Treehouse, for instance, who, who's been sharing with me since the 90s um, has heard me say this, has heard me predict this, has heard me say that people are showing up in hoodoo, and not just ATR, but like you say, occult, witchcraft, tarot reading, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, primarily because they believe it to be popular. It's pop cultural right now, but then there's that, what they believe to be a financial component. And, and, okay, so you have a few charlatans that show up, a, a Miss Cleo that shows up, and they might make, you know, some money and disappear, end up in jail, end up going back to the church, end up going back to Jesus. And so each generation has to confront that, has to figure out, you know, hey, I'm just learning something new. It's turning on all my energy centers. Now I'm out seeking this. And some of us do that in our teens. Some of us do that in our 20s. Some of us do that in our 30s. But when that light comes on, then they become aware. They start seeking the voodoo. They start seeking the the psychic reader. They start seeking it. And rather than learn it, observe it, understand where you fit into it, they want to be a practitioner. If I had to compare that to the church, everybody can't just show up at a church and be the pastor. Everybody can't just show up at the church and be given the keys to the door, you know, the, the account information. Everybody can't just show up and sit on the piano or, or the organ. And so there's some getting to know and some building of relationships and some development of skills and knowledge and understanding of how something is done and organized. And, and many, no matter what the age got us initiative, many are seeking the quick pill, red, blue, purple pill fix to a thing. And even when they skip over that, based on what you're saying here, um, they want to be all-powerful, all, almighty. They, they want to be you or I. Or, or, or Big Frida, or, or T.S. Madison, and, and they expect it to happen overnight. And, and, and I invited just then some other social networking figures who aren't in ATR, who aren't in spirituality and religion, to make a point. Because even if you can gather some sense of knowledge, history, about ATR, you still got to learn social media. You still have to learn marketing. You still have to learn how to run a business. You still have to learn how to run a ministry. You still have to understand what ministry is. So you have those who come into this and they only see the flash, the lights, the performance, 
oh, God, I want to do that. I want to be a singer. I want to be an actor. I want to be a star in ATR. And then they might have some flash, might, might have a few moves, but then they get in there and realize that that's not enough to maintain it. And then when life kicks in, children, grandchildren, addictions, jail, police, drug abuse, financial problems, okay, how strong then is your magic? How strong is your witchcraft? How strong is your occult power then? So, yeah, and and they go right back to Jesus. Some of them also can't shut out the voices, parents, friends, family who just can't accept that you're growing, that you're evolving, that you're changing, that you might have a different sense of understanding of something. And I, I like to tell my Godchildren all the time, if you can't explain it, you can't expect me to understand it. If you can't explain it to mom or papa, sister, brother, how do you expect them to accept you in it? It's not enough to say, oh, I don't believe in that anymore. I'm just spiritual. Well, what does that mean? What does that mean to someone who still existed within those systems? So I'm not surprised by it, goddess. I'm not surprised that people would, you know, spend, you know, five years, seven years, nine years, you know, online representing you know, themselves as being ingratiated in, in the practice only to the return to. I've also had people b- then blame ATR, then blame Voodoo, then blame Ifa, blame Eshu for being problematic in their life and then returning to Jesus. I had a cousin did that. That's why in, in any business, you got to be careful of mixing the lines between friends and family. And when religion and spirituality is involved, it's even more volatile. And so I had a cousin had same issue. Eshu messed up her life. And she then went back to, 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 a, to a relationship with, with quote-unquote Jesus that she never really had to begin with, uh, which is another unique phenomenon. Those who spent a great deal of their lives searching, looking, exploring other practices and tradition, picking apart other practices and traditions and creating sort of this this gumbo only to then decide, you know, I'm going to do Jesus. That that's the only way I'm going to do do church. And listen, I'm okay with that, but just don't make it my issue. Uh that's what that's what I don't understand. Why then does it become my issue? Why then do you need to scam it on my page? On my post, in my DM, you know, love your God, love your Jesus, love your white God, but don't judge me because I don't. <laughs> don't don't judge us because we acknowledge the ancestral powers that existed before that information was introduced to you, and don't bastardize it, but by suggesting that our ancestors had no organized structure had no organized system, had no organized way of doing things, of coming into the knowledge of something, particularly during that middle passage, you know, enslavement up until now. 
almost everything that happens in our community, you are introduced to it. You are initiated into it by your parents, your older brother and sister, your aunt, your uncle, your grandparents. There was not this modern sense of self-knowledge. I, I, I was born naked into the world, and, and everything that I have and I've gained, you know, I owe to myself. <laughs> Didn't uh, Snoop Dogg say that? <laughs> Didn't he give himself an award? You know, I, wanna, I don't want to thank God. I want to thank me, <laughs> you know. <laughs> but I and I are roots. Me and I are God. But you also are ancestor. You, you are ancestor. You are on your journey now to either becoming an agur or an ancestor, becoming just another dead individual or an empowered individual who not only pulls people up and forward in this realm of existence, but on into the next. Our ancestors aren't bound to help us. Our ancestors aren't, you know, uh, obligated to assist us. They have committed to do so. They have contracted with God and, and, and the spirit realm to continue to assist us. But they're not obligated to do so. Uh, thank you so much, D.D. Harmon. I appreciate you. Um, Neophyte Bokor, what are you doing? Driving? You run back to the oppressor um, the artist April when that's all that you know. That's all that you know. I, I won't necessarily judge them for a conscious choice to run back to the oppressor. I, I understand what you're saying. But if it's all you know, if it's all you know, and then your attempt to learn something new seems hard, seems complicated, seems take a great deal more effort uh, than, than one might anticipate. Yeah. You run back to what you know. Uh, just like the sister or brother who stays in an uh, abusive relationship. My mom left my dad 13 times. She counted 11. I count 13. I dad to find you. But how do you explain that? How do you explain the woman who would rather put on makeup and cover up the abuse than to, to leave. So we say, oh, well, are there kids involved? Is there financial, you know, constraints involved? You know, we start going through this list of stuff. And the more power you are as a woman, the less sense it makes to you that any woman would subject herself, would stay in an oppressive, abusive, bondage-based relationship. So um, the artist April Incorporated, yeah, they run back to the oppressor. They run back to the abuser. You run back to what you know. And it's reinforced because it appears the illusion is, well, that's what everybody else believes. You know, you turn on the TV, you turn on the newspaper. Oh, my God, try going through all Africa and, and choose some countries, Uganda, Angola, now, now, you almost think that there's nothing else going on in those countries except religion, except Christianity and Islam. So that reinforces for the, the weak at heart 
that there are no other options or the other options will not be as supported um, the artist April. And so they, they indeed, they, they do. And, and I'm in agreement with you. I'm shaking my head too. They, they run back to the oppressor. They run back to the only thing that they know. Um, okay, Goddess Initiative, you, you're entitled to that. <laughs> for me, it's a little deeper than that, but, but you're entitled to that. And for many in our community, it's a little much, it, it's much more deeper than that. Some brothers and sisters cannot separate enslavement and oppression from Christianity to get to that place. And, and I'm not here to judge whether we should or should not. I know that I'm not. But as you started your comment, I'm okay with people who choose Christianity. I'm being very specific with my words. I'm not okay with the church. I'm not okay with the Catholic organization. I'm not okay with the, you know, structures, administrative structures that we associate with the quote-unquote church. I don't have a judgment of my mother or anyone else who chooses to adhere to that tradition, who has their own inner standing within that tradition. It's not for me to judge. Now, as a activist in the community, no, I'm not about to teach it. I'm not about to support it any more than they would support me, any more than they would support me. And that's a big issue in our community, particularly the black community, throwing our support behind people and places and things that do not support us. We we talk about the foreign-owned corner store and spend our money there. We, we talk about people coming into our community to offer us something that we may or may not necessarily need. And then we keep supporting them to be there. <laughs> you know, um, Dee Dee, it, it's spirit. Today is spirit. Ain't nothing going on behind it. It's spirit. <laughs> so, yeah, um, I'm okay with the quote-unquote Christian. I'm okay with the, with the individual believing Muslim. Believe your belief. Believe what you what you understand. Um, but I don't, you know, wholesale marketing it to the people. No, no. Um, J.P. Carroll, I agree. HCR puts more responsibility on the part of the devotee versus just showing up on Sundays. And and that was one of the things that drew me to voodoo was sort of the, the, the idea in religion that, you know, you wait until the, the other side. You wait until the great by and by. You know, it'll all be good, you know, after a while. Voodoo and HCR gave me a sense of control, personal control, having something that I can always do, some action that I can always, always take. Um, so I agree with you in, in that. I, I really do. Yes, um, the artist April, this is the time. Uh, and there are many people both in this group, in this chat right now, um, under the sound of my voice, who are doing ancestor work and divination right now. It's the biggest service that I'm offering 
right now. In fact, readings to some degree have, have decreased just a little bit, and ancestor work and divination has taken off. People indeed want that ancestral connection. And I don't know what it is about, or, or if it is the pandemic, or if it is the idea of family and support and isolation and, and all the energy that that has stirred up in us. But, um, wow, my ancestral world room is full. And I kind of want to laugh because we have a, a, a godchild. I don't think she's in the room yet. Uh, beloved Arisha <laughs> and her husband, Chef Bougie. Oh, my goodness. Uh, I hope she's not going to be mad at me for saying but she got a shrine uh, like she's feeding the village. Okay. <laughs> Sister is working her ancestral shrine like she's feeding the village. Um, and, and, and I'm humbled by that. I'm humbled by that. Um, and, and what people would say at the time of pandemic and challenge and, 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 and trouble, many of us are finding joy and solace and balance and peace and renewal, you know, through ancestral work and divination. Those who are now more inclined to build up self-employment, autonomy, going into business for themselves, moving forward on your music career, your writing career, your book authoring career, your, your dancing uh, career, moving forward on those things, um, not because we necessarily have more money or more uh, resources, but for many of us, we have now more time and, and more space to sort of move and, and operate in. So, um, Absolutely. Absolutely, the artist April. Thank you so much for your input today. Um, and yes, J.C. Farrell, absolutely, HCR requires work. Not instead of, but God, it, it requires work along with prayer and meditation. It requires work along with projection of or projection of tech energy, you know, and, and how we direct that to create and recreate our reality. It absolutely reduces depression and other, I like how you said empowerment. Empowerment, entanglement, insecurity. <laughs> yes, I like that, D.D. Harmon said, we don't drag Jesus. We... <laughs> We just know we are the original. We just know where the original story comes from. We just know where the original processes originate and how those processes have been now, you know, renewed in other global world religious demonstrations. Yeah, we support things that don't support us um, from the household out to the street. Some of y'all supporting that lover. That spouse that ain't holding you up, that ain't holding up your children, that ain't holding up your household, and, and you stick it in there. Read my mama's book, A Letter to My Sister, by Von Sell Savage, A Letter to My Sister, holding up stuff that don't feed us, don't support us. Uh, and we got all kind of reasons why we don't want to be different, we don't want to be 
considered weird. We don't want to step outside the status quo. We don't want to, you know, be questioned because we may or may not be able to put words to, to, to the transformation that, that's going on. Um, there was something I wanted to share, too, by the way, uh, before too much time gets away from me. Um, I've talked recently and introduced to many of you um, the legendary Bois Coupe. Bois Coupe was not a legend. Bois Coupe, uh, no, Bois Coupe wasn't legendary. Bois Coupe was the legend, indeed. Uh, he would be uh, our first consciously aware human enslaved member of our family transitioned into Zorak, transitioned into Orisha. So the legend of Black Kupis, how police turned a black man into a villain, saved himself, is a new narrative on this historic story. It appeared in USA Today on October 1st, 2020, by the writer Daphne Dure, or Dure. And I'm sharing it uh, as we speak to my Twitter. Twitter does divine praise. Twitter.com forward slash divine praise. That's one word. And in a moment, I'm going to share it to Facebook as well. Oh, come on now. What's going on with my spelling? Okay. Here we go. Legend of Wakupi. And this caught my attention because clearly uh, the author is considering not just the pandemic and our opportunity to sit down and be still and be quiet and look, but then to have the demonstration of uh, Black Lives Matter and police brutality and violence um, continue. But in this season where we, again, have the opportunity to look and pay attention. So two centuries ago, the blood of one armed black man stained the swamp grass along the banks of Bayou St. John in this beautiful enchanted city of New Orleans. The city guardsmen who shot this fugitive slave lowered their guns. They got close enough to count two wounds, maybe three, and decided that Bois Coupe was finally dead. They were wrong. Born when black bodies were the property of white men and American law enforcement had barely evolved past the night watches of Europe, the Patty Wolof, as we used to call them, the slave formerly known as Squire, lost one of his arms more than a year before the guardsmen shot him in the bayou, again trying to make a slave attempt, seeking freedom, liberation, autonomy. And thus he received the name Wakupi because he lost that arm. In January 1836, 
another city patrolman's bullet tore through his upper right arm after Squire resisted officer's attempt to take him back to his master. A doctor amputated the limb, and Boacoupi, Squire, renamed after the French phrase for severed arm, became one of America's first publicized cases of a police officer shooting a black man in the line of duty. Police waged a public relations war against Boacoupi that turned him into an alleged super predator. By the time the officer shot him in the bayou in April 1837, Boacoupi had become the most wanted bandit in their campaign to rid the city of New Orleans' outer swamp of fugitive slaves. Remember, earlier in today's show, I talked about St. Maroon, Denise Alvarado's book. I talked about St. Milo, the escaped slave turned Maroon leader who established a community of enslaved escaped thieves out in the swamp, said to be now Maroon here in, in New Orleans East. And so, Wakupi had become a legend at this point, had become Loa and Orisha-like, superpowered at this point. And it was their attempt to rid what the city saw as its remaining fugitive slave disruptors who were existing out, out in the swamps. Newspapers described him as a killer and a demon. So scary that white parents warned their insolent children that Wakupi would come and get them in the middle of the night. The history of law enforcement in the U.S. is a scattered and varied as the development of each colony, state, and territory. One thread, however, is consistent. Even before police were police, the nation's earliest law enforcement agencies monitored controlled, and punished black people in every place they encountered them. This is America. (laughs) Since the first organized slave patrols in 1704, police and politicians uh, capitalized on fear, turning black men such as Wakupi into villains, and acting as civilized society's only protection against them. What we see today is not what I would call a parallel to what happened during slavery, but an evolution of structure of racism that is at the foundation of policing, said DeLacy Davis, New Jersey-based founder of the activist group Black Cops Against Police Brutality. This is a system that was never designed to protect or serve Black people. The idea that enslaved black people would overthrow a system that kept them in bondage was a constant fear of white colonial America, especially in places where enslaved people outnumbered their masters. The angst festered after each of the more than 300 instances in which slaves either organized or executed a revolt from the arrival of the first Africans in 1619 to the start of the Civil War. Revolts 
near New Orleans in 1729. In 1811, fueled fears as did the successful Haitian Revolution at the turn of the 19th century that sent droves of French planters to the city of New Orleans. Those who feared the revolution, those who feared the voodoo, came to New Orleans, okay? So they didn't bring it to us, okay? They just complicated it for us. New Orleans government leaders had two responses to the revolution. First, they temporarily prohibited any black person, enslaved or free, to immigrate to the city. Then in 1805, they gave every city police officer a gun. They hoped an armed city guard would make citizens feel safer. They were wrong. Residents complained to city leaders and journalists about police so much that a newspaper article in 1829 suggested a grand jury should convene to consider whether to declare the city police a public nuisance. They were lazy and often nowhere to be found when New Orleans were victims of crime, other articles said. When they were around, they were rude, and some officers inherited from Louisiana's time under French rule did not speak English. Of what use under heaven are they, asked the writer of a New Orleans Argus article, which referred to the 50-member police force as drones and proposed cutting their $21,000 a year salary budget. The truth is the city guard is no guard. It is an outlandish and uh, facial establishment, neither ornamental nor useful to the city of New Orleans. And remember now, I'm not talking about right now. <laughs> I'm talking about 1829, defund the police in 1829, referring to the police as drones in 1829. In 1830, city leaders voted to disband the police department after an officer shot and killed a white sailor in the line of duty. <laughs> New Orleans Mayor Dennis Prayer, who was in charge of appointing officers, vetoed the measure but couldn't stop the call to rein in the police. The only thing New Orleans agreed police were good for was controlling the city's enslaved black population. They regularly rounded up disorderly slaves, took them to jail, whipped them. So Bois Coupé was the creation of the black boogeyman. Bois Coupé, then known as Squire, was a favorite of his master, William Dubai, who took him along on hunting trips and taught him how to shoot a pistol. Dubai occasionally hired Squire out to other plantations, and Squire stopped coming back right away taking days at a time to visit friends in the cypher swamps outside the city. As far as we know, Squire might have had a wife. We weren't allowed to marry them. Squire might have had a girlfriend, might have had children. 
We don't know that because that information would not have been important enough to, to be recorded back then. So, so we just know him to, to see us according to the master. We just know that he escaped routine according to the master. William Dubai. But we also know from the, the narrative of St. Milo, as I said earlier in the show, that this was a common process during the time of the slavery that we were taught. On one of these occasions that Dubai hired out the squires in August 1835, city records show the police found squires away from Dubai's plantation and arrested him for Jordan Rabu or Plain Street. It was shortly after police returned him to Dubai that year that he left his master for the last time. According to University of California, Berkeley professor Brian Wagner, a New Orleans native who released a book about the legend of Wat Kupi in 2019, Squire moved into the swamp to live with a band of fugitive slaves, mixed race people, and Native Americans, only to be discovered by police a year later. In the struggle to catch him, officers fired at Squire and shattered his right arm. A doctor amputated it at the hospital from which he escaped before police could return him to his master. Days after Bois Coupe's escape, the city council coincidentally voted to strip police of their guns. Prayer was livid. As he tried to convince city leaders to change their minds, Wagner said the mayor fell back on the one thing people agreed the police knew how to do, control black bodies. Prayer could have used any number of reasons to argue that the guard should be armed. New Orleans was a wild riverfront town back then. Wagner said, and New Orleans citizens themselves were authorized to carry guns, and still are, legally. But the argument that Prayer used was slavery. His argument was a popular one. In 1704, listen, we're still... Almost a whole century before Asian Revolution, in 1704, leaders in the rural areas outside Charleston, South Carolina, had established the nation's first organized police agency created for the unique and specific purpose of monitoring slaves. They called themselves what they were, slave patrols. Their primary purpose, much like their predecessors from the Caribbean, was to make sure that the growing enslaved population stayed in its place. They enforced slave codes and intricate sets of laws also adapted from the Caribbean colonies. Codes varied by colony. But in most cases, enslaved people could not earn money, own goods, learn to read, wear nice clothes, or leave their master's plantations without a pass. In Bois Coupe, Prier found the perfect foil for his slavery argument. Less than two months after Bois Coupe's hospital escape in 1836, city guardsmen found the dead body of a white man in New Orleans Bayou 
Kohan, Kashan. Forgive me if I ain't pronouncing that right, local. Koshan, Bayou Koshan. Freer named Boakopi as the prime suspect. Over the next year, police implicated him in the murders of at least five white people, including a white woman who police said was held for days before her killer strung her up by one arm to a tree and shot her. Historians have found no evidence that Boakopi killed anyone. Police blamed Wakupi for dozens of robberies and other crimes, painting him as one of the worst outlaws the city had ever known, according to Wagner. Evidence shows the Swamp Crew did rob a few stagecoaches and burglarized stores and taverns, but even that only happened after he's branded as an outlaw, and there's already a manhunt for him, according to Wagner. It added to Boakupi's infamy, his status as a as a voodoo, as a loa, as an as an orisha, that he didn't exactly die when the two city guardsmen left him for dead in Bayou St. John, on the land that today is now New Orleans City Park. The posse they sent to collect his body the next morning found only a trail of blood leading into the water. Rumors began to spread in the city that Wakupi was somehow impervious to bullets. In contemporaneous writings and recorded oracle histories, people referred to Wakupi as a great villain with the superhuman ability to flatten bullets with his chest and ricochet them off his body back towards the men who hunted him. These descriptions aligned with the treatment of black people's bodies during the slave trade where they where they were deemed subhuman and at the same time having superhuman strength. Authorities wrote that police officers on Wakupi's trail would suddenly disappear into a cloud of mist, according to Wagner's book, The Life and Legend of Wakupi. Wagner said Louis Louis Armand Giraud, a journalist who ran a New Orleans school for boys in 1840, described Wakupi in a short story as fireproof. Everyone understood, moreover, never to look Wakupi directly in the eyes, as his gaze could hypnotize you and turn you into stone, Wagner quoted from Giraud's story. The origins of policing date back to ancient Egypt and spread across the civilized world in many forms. Police mediated disputes, supervised tax collectors, and performed other peacekeeping duties. And in most cases, they spent very little time controlling people's movements or even preventing crime. Police forces in America were uniquely shaped by slavery, which gave officers a level of power previously reserved only for the military. Experts such as City University of New York professor Christopher Chapman said American policing's roots in controlling the movement of black people, such as Bois-Coupi, evolved into a fundamental aspect of modern American law enforcement 
that disproportionately brands black people as threatening. According to Chapman, this makes police officers more likely to view black people as combatants who need to be neutralized for even minor acts of perceived disobedience, such as questioning the reason for why they're being stopped, refusing a search of their car, or objecting to arrest. In George Floyd's case, it cost the 46-year-old father of five his life under the knee of a Minneapolis police officer on Memorial Day. On Memorial Day. In the minutes it took Floyd to suffocate on the ground, at least three other officers stood by. He pleaded with Derek Chauvin, or Chauvin, not to kill him and said repeatedly that he could not breathe. Beyond Floyd, Chapman said, right-leaning politicians and pundits, rebranding of the Black Lives Matter movement as a hate group or a terrorist illustrates how government and law enforcement marginalize black people who push for equal treatment. And in doing this, they can paint everyone that believes in the movement with only the most radical views of the people in the organization, Chapman said. It's a process of trying to undermine the movement by connecting it to violent images. What that does is it sends a message to a reasonable person that says, if I don't agree with the looting or acts of violence, then I better distance myself from this. In Bois Coupe's case, any chance he had of being a sympathetic figure vanished by the time Fuhrer declared him an outlaw. Although city councilmen wouldn't agree to rearm the city guards until the late 1840s, Giraud wrote that newspapers that had criticized the police years earlier now urged Freer to do whatever he could to get the Negroes of the swamp under control. Newspapers aligned with the city guards and adopted wholesale their accounts of encounters with Bois Coupis. Police were still not allowed to carry guns in April 37 when two city guardsmen shot Bois Coupis on the banks of Bayou St. John. But the New Orleans Bee reported that the two officers had been hunting rabbits on the land of the prominent citizen when Bois Coupis approached them and shot at them. The incident reinforced Stewart's claim his guards needed guns, gave them a self-defense argument, and made Wapakee an attempted murder. Suddenly, the same city guards, characterized as black state voted in act years before, became heroic. Not entirely a novice in these cases, the guards quickly returned to company and were successful in this paper reporting, which in 1830, English the glory term, the idea that officers were skilled marksmen who hit their targets, Guacupi, in self-defense. survived three more months after police thought they killed him in five All the while, historical records show he had a bounty as high as $2,000 or nearly $55,000 in today's money over his head. 
Vakupi's demise came not at the hands of the police. You already know what I'm going to say. <laughs> but at the hands of an acquaintance, a Spaniard named Francisco Garcia bludgeoned him to death in hopes of receiving the award money, but was disappointed when city leaders paid him only $250. Police threw Bois Coupe's disfigured body near a fountain at what today is Jackson Square, and white New Orleans celebrated his death. And it's one of the reasons that I celebrate St. Maroon every year on June 19th. I don't acknowledge Juneteenth for obvious historical archaeological reasons. I do acknowledge the brutality and the execution of St. Milo and many other Maroon leaders like St. Milo and Wakupi, who ultimately were mutilated and disfigured and beheaded and hung in Jackson Square, one of the most favored tourist spots today. One of the most favored psychic spiritualist reader spots today, Jackson Square. And white New Orleanians celebrated Boakopi's death. Historic accounts of Boakopi's demise came with reports that New Orleans slave owners forced 2,000 to 3,000 slaves to look at Boakopi's body. The life of this Negro has been one of crime and total depravity, one newspaper article said, calling him a fiend in human shape. His destruction is hailed by old and young as a benefit to society. The report continued later adding, so enormous have been the crimes of this Negro that the large multitude of slaves assembled to see the last of him shuddered at the bare recital of his bloody and murderous deeds. In the years since his death, the story of Wakupi has been retold and romanticized. And some versions depict him as six foot six, having both his arms intact. Sidney Poitier played a role in 1957 movie called Band of Angels that many say was inspired by Bois-Coupé's legend. The story has been recited as fiction so many times, Wagner said, that when he started research for his book several years ago, native New Orleanians were surprised to hear that Bois-Coupé actually existed. In that way, said Davis, a police officer in New Jersey in the 1980s, Police nearly 200 years ago turned a victim of their violence into a man no longer worthy of an honest existence. By the time they shot him the second time and he lived, they didn't need him anymore, David said. He was worth more dead to them at that point than alive. And so we see not only that story, that imagery, that energy transferring into our modern time. But we also see that same game plan, that same blueprint being utilized. Aboye 
Priest Awoloa, Babalawo, Ifa Orisha, Yoruba, Ifa Toke, greetings, beloved. So we see that same demonizing of hoodoo, root work, conjure, voodoo still today. And if it's not outward demonization, then we cartoonalize it. We fictionalize it. We give it fantasy-like qualities so that it appears unbelievable, so that it shows up as unrealistic. I find it very interesting that many New Orleanians did not know the uh, authenticity of Marie Laveau until the 1970s, when Ina Fritnick came here from a, a, a Euro-Asian country. I'm not sure exactly where she's from. I, I want to say she's from I'm not sure exactly where she's from, so I don't want to misquote. But she came here, went through the archives, slept on people's couches, and validated the authenticity of Marie Laveau. So it's really interesting to me how we don't acknowledge our heroes. We don't. Acknowledge Young Horace, greetings, beloved. The one Young Horace, yes. Thank you so much. Uh, we don't acknowledge our leaders, our heroes, our activists, our maroons when they're on the ground and doing the work. And often our stories are told by others with an interest in our story, with an interest in our history, with an interest in, in telling and retelling. And validated. And we've got to take better care. We cannot continue to allow our heroes to go. Um, yes, always a friend, any goddess initiative. It helps to support that idea that we can't trust each other, that black people can't come together, that we can't, you know, work in, in, in a unified uh, reality for, for the betterment of, of all people. And it's an extension, again, of white supremacy and, and the tools of white supremacy, which still keep us divided, which still keep us isolated, which still keep us not trusting enough to come together today and do things that affect the, the, the better good of our, of our community. Listen, do you all have questions, comments for me, requests? My phone lines are still open at area code 845-277-9143, 845-277-9143. you got about nine minutes uh, for your questions, comments, or requests on the phone lines. You can also join us here uh, live on screen. If you got your webcam and your, and your microphone and your audio together, Follow the URL link that is scrolling. Uh, give me a second to copy and paste that, and I'm going to throw it back in the chat box. And you got about nine minutes. And then I'm going to go hydrate and find me some lunch and best utilize these 15 minutes <laughs> before my next appointment arrives. And for those of you who missed it, thank you so much, J.P. Terrell. Thank you, Goddess Initiative, um, Neophyte Vocor. Um, am I freezing? 
I'm not freezing on my end. So it might be your internet connection, uh, Neophyte Bokur. But I'm always grateful for the opportunity to share the truth. And I share the truth because I, I don't want to be a preacher, a screamer, the soapbox guy whose only interest, J.P. Terrell, is pointing out who is and who is not. My goal, my wish, my prayer is that people will walk in their authenticity. Authenticity. Authenticity doesn't require perpetrating, doesn't require math, doesn't require looking like, pretending to be A, B, or C, one thing or the other. But to walk in our spirit journey authentically, to step into these practices and these traditions authentically and not beguile ourselves and not mislead each other. We know that when we look up today in social media, everybody's a reader. Everybody's a tarot reader. Everybody's a psychic. Everybody's a root worker. Everybody in Twitter and Instagram and Facebook all of a sudden is a reader. And as the Goddess Initiative so eloquently shared with us uh, early on in the chat, um, the minute things don't work or they have a negative experience, they return to what they know. And in many cases, that's the church. In many cases, that's Jesus. In many cases, that's, you know, not having a real belief, you know. But they drag ACR in the process. They dirty up. Ifa and Santeria and Lukomi and Voodoo in the process and continue this white supremacist dialogue, which I guess demonstrated goes all the way back to the 1600s, that somehow HPR is dangerous, unpredictable, low behavior, only for the outsider, only for the disenfranchised, and that we don't stand on the healing element of this tradition, the empowering element of this tradition. Um, God's initiative, I'm, I'm grateful for that. The sensitive child heard and responded to my voice uh, even while you were pregnant. So I, I really appreciate that. Uh, all is a blessing. I, I, I like the knowledge and the idea that I'm not just doing what I do for me or for you or for this moment, but that we are, everyone that's here, we are speaking into the future. We're speaking into the next generation. 10 years from now, 20 years from now, 30 years from now, 40 years from now, you know, who knows how many of us will still be living or not, but this dialogue, this footprint will still exist. My books will still exist. Documentaries will still exist. The documentation of our journey will still exist. And so people will know that there's another way. There's another option to just to just what has been forced upon us, presented to us. I certainly appreciate each and every one of you. All is truly and indeed a blessing. I look forward to connecting with you here again on tomorrow at high noon, U.S. Standard Time. 
for more revolutionary hoodoo, New Orleans voodoo secrets and recipes. Remembering that all is truly and indeed a blessing. If you can just see beyond the veil, for it's all just an illusion and a test on one of the greatest divine mysteries of this lifetime. Respect the voodoo, respect the ancestors. Dash of cayenne to the root Gonna put on my Greek grease suit Boil a gumbo Hot and steady Don't care if ready, ready Gonna pray at that old cemetery Down on Claiborne where she's buried
I'm going to take the whole town with me. One day I'm going to die. I'm going to take the whole town with me. So I need y'all to support Atlas of Cursed Places. Atlas of Cursed Places. Tuesday night, Nat Geo, Ujo Wajet. Nat Geo, National Geographic TV. You don't have to have cable. You can watch it on, on the Internet. You can watch it on Nat Geo channel. Greetings, Cleveland, Ohio. You can watch it on the Internet on the Nat Geo channel. You can watch it on Hulu. You can watch it on Amazon. But, yes, P. Anderson, the channel is Nat Geo. Is Nat Geo. All is a blessing. See you at 8 o'clock Central Standard Time tonight. Uh, if you want, you can join me on Twitter, and we can talk about it. All is a blessing. A dash of cayenne to the root. Gonna put on my Greek grease suit. Boil a gumbo, hot and steady. Don't care if ready, ready. Gonna pray at that old cemetery. Down on Claiborne, where she's buried. Build a fire on the bayou When a black cat scratch at two Under a full moon that's blue Chant some magic words, Kufaru A dash of cayenne to the rule Gonna put on my Greek grease suit Black top hat, black suit too, single rod that molds this through. I'm gonna get them bones out the graveyard for you. Can't see my eyes, black shades too. A dash of cayenne to the roof. Gonna put on my green, green suit. Black top hat, black suit too, same old ride that Moses threw. I'm gonna get them bones out the graveyard for you, can't see my eyes, black shades too. Going free at the old cemetery, down on Claiborne where she's buried, a dash of cayenne. To the roof, gonna put on my Greek grease suit. Yeah, black top hat, 
black suit too Same old ride that Moses threw I'm gonna get them balls out the graveyards for you Can't see my eyes, black sheets too Gonna pray at that old cemetery Down on Claiborne where she's buried a dash of cayenne to the room. Gonna put on my green grease suit. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.